Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Previously on Unraveled, Once a Killer. To hear it was him, given the fact that this was such a huge personality in this area, people were just shocked. He really did that? And then I married him, like, a few months after that. I was like, well, that could have been me. This was a very violent and brutal attack, so I expected there should have been other incidents. It is surprising that someone with such violent tendencies did not commit any other homicides. Nobody can understand how this happened. You do kind of rethink, how do you really know a person? How does it feel to know that you were so close with someone who was capable of such monstrous acts? It, it, it scares you because you know what? How many days and nights did he sleep in the room next to my room? You know, or my other roommate? He could have done the same to us. It's very hard to think that you ran around with this guy and he's been to your family's house and friends and, and you've introduced him to all your, your you know, people you've hung out with and, and uh, just become a brother, basically. And, and uh, I was just my boggled. I had a friend that, that, that murdered two people that were innocent. You just took them off the street and killed them. You know? What in the hell is wrong? There's a whole different type of person out there killing 
very violently that aren't serial killers. This person was the polar opposite of everything police have been looking for. The fear is there's these one-off offenders hiding in the shadows, living a normal life. Here is somebody who's so well-known. Right under everybody's nose. From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Once a Killer, a five-part podcast that investigates the mystery of one-and-done sexual thrill killers who are openly living among us. I'm Alexis Linkletter. And I'm Billy Jensen. When Raymond Rowe was identified as Christy Marac's killer in 2018, he appeared to be a unique offender. He had targeted a stranger for horrific rape and murder, but seemingly never gave into that urge again. He was, to coin a phrase, a one-and-done killer. There was no criminal profile that fit this kind of individual. Were it not for genetic genealogy, Raymond Rowe would still be a free man today. This made us wonder, is Roe really an outlier? Or does he shine a light on a breed of killer that until now has been working in the shadows? It turns out, Roe isn't so unique after all. And that took us to the other side of the country, 2,800 miles from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to the rural community of Snohomish County, Washington, the backdrop of another disturbing case. It appeared that somebody had experience that did this, somebody that had done it before and maybe had done it after that too. He carried a rape murder kit with him and he was out hunting. That's Detective Jim Scharf from the Cold Case Unit in Snohomish. In 2018, at the same time that authorities in Pennsylvania were honing in on Raymond Rowe, Scharf was hoping to identify another long-sought perpetrator, one which could provide the answer to a 31-year-old mystery. Jim Scharf started working in law enforcement in Snohomish in the late 70s, covering the sprawling section of the Pacific Northwest that covers from the bays and estuaries of the Puget Sound to the dense forests and alpine wilderness of Washington's interior. Snohomish County is just north of Seattle. There's several major cities that are on the west side of the county. As you move further east, it becomes very rural and it, it's uh, forest service land. This large swath of remote areas and unsettled land was already proving to be the perfect territory for prolific killers to operate and hide. When I was a patrolman in the city of Snohomish, I was paying attention to the murders, like Ted Bundy had been committing murders and the Green River Killer was active. so. I was always aware of the high-profile cases in the area. But there would be one case early in Jim's career that he would not be able to let go. It involved two missing young adults from Canada. The story starts in late 1987, when Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook, who had just started dating, set out on a quick mini-adventure. Tanya was an 18-year-old girl who grew up in Saanich, British Columbia. It's a suburb of Victoria. And she was just out of high school dating a new boyfriend, Jay Cook. 
And Jay's father asked him if he would go down to Seattle to pick up some furnace parts for a job he was working on. And they thought that Tanya and he could have some time alone to get to know each other if she went with him. So on November 18th, they left Victoria on the uh, ferry boat and came over to Port Angeles to head to Seattle to pick up the furnace parts. They were driving Jay's parents' van, a large copper-colored van that had windows all the way down the sides of it. So it was pretty distinctive and it was extra long. The plan was that they would sleep in the van uh, once they got to Seattle and then they would pick up the furnace parts the next morning and go home. It was just supposed to be a one night trip, right? Yes. When they didn't come home the next day, they knew that something was wrong. It was sort of on the uh, late afternoon of November 19th when my dad called me to ask if Tanya and Jay might have come through Vancouver or if they had been in contact with me because they hadn't returned home on their sort of scheduled time. That's John Van Kylenborg, Tanya's older brother. He was attending college in Vancouver at the time. He didn't even know that his sister had gone on a trip until he got that unsettling call from his dad. I was concerned right away, as my parents were, because it was out of character for Tanya to not be in communication if the plan was changed like that. Tanya and Jay's family immediately filed a missing persons report with Washington authorities, then headed south to search for their missing loved ones themselves. My dad and two of my cousins, the four of us traveled down to the Seattle area to try to find other information or find other leads and to circulate some missing persons posters. So you were going around all of these different locations showing their pictures and asking people, have you, have you seen them? Yeah. We didn't get any, any real leads out of any of that. So you're trying to fight back the worst fears. You're trying to hold out hope, and, but you know, in the, without any information, it was obviously getting harder to be optimistic. And were you in touch with Jay's family? And, and how were they handling it? They were as beside themselves as we were, really. You know, I think everyone was gathered around the family home and trying to keep a 24-7 vigil, hoping for any sort of phone call or any sort of communication from anybody. Both houses, I think, had lots of family and friends there 24 hours a day. Six days later, on November 24th, a pedestrian was picking up cans along a rural road when they made a horrifying discovery. It was Tanya's body, down an embankment, dead from a gunshot wound. It was in a remote area of North Skagit County, heavily wooded area. The closest house maybe was a quarter mile away. And she was found with her shirt pushed up our bra pushed up over her breast, but she was still wearing her shirt and jacket. But she was naked from the waist down. And there was a zip tie found up by the road, and they found a shell casing. The autopsy showed that she'd been shot in the back of the head with a 380 caliber bullet. 
She had rolled from the edge of the road down a steep embankment about 30 feet. And was she sexually assaulted? Yes. The autopsy found seminal fluid in her vagina. John and his family received the call that they'd been dreading. They asked us to drive north to Skagit to meet with them and identify or try to identify the body. So we did, and unfortunately, it was a positive identification. It was Tanya. Do you know right away? Yeah, I mean, it probably took two seconds, probably. Something, obviously, you never, never forget. After identifying the body, we talked to my mom and told her the terrible, terrible news. Fortunately, she um, she had other, other family and friends with her at the house, so she wasn't on her own. But, um, yeah, terrible to not be together at that time. The same day Tanya's body was found, a bartender in Bellingham, 15 miles from where Tanya was discovered, found her wallet behind their tavern. The copper-colored van was found abandoned just down the block near a bus station. Is there anything of note in the van? Tanya's pants were found in there, and they had semen stains on them. There was a blanket that had some blood stains on it. There were other items of evidence, like more zip ties. And then up in the front, they found the ferry ticket from Bremerton to Seattle to know that they would have arrived around 11.40 p.m. in Seattle. Were they successful in identifying any prints that shouldn't have been on the vehicle? The ones they were able to identify belonged to Tanya or Jay. Investigators had to consider a grim possibility. Could Jay Cook have used this road trip as an opportunity to rape and murder his new girlfriend? That scenario was eliminated a couple of days later. On Thanksgiving Day, there's a man that's gone bird hunting south of Monroe. And as he's coming back with his dog, they head around the south side of High Bridge and the dog discovers Jay's body. It was about 70 miles between where Jay was found and where Tanya's body was found. Jay's body was thrown back into some really tall grass and blackberries. It was covered up with a blue blanket and he'd been beaten in the head extensively. He had uh, twine around his neck along with a couple of dog collars that had been used to choke him. And then he also had a gag in his mouth that was a tissue wrapped around a whole pack of cigarettes that was crammed all the way down his throat. What did investigators think they were dealing with? What kind of what kind of killer or predator? Jay's body was found about three quarters of a mile from the Honor Farm, and they had inmates from the Monroe Penitentiary working there. It was known that sometimes the guys that were inmates there would sneak out to the west 
on Crescent Lake Road and meet up with a girlfriend or maybe go get some drugs. So that was just a little bit further is High Bridge, and that's where Jay's body was found. So the thoughts back then were that the person dumped a body close to this isolated area that inmates knew about. There was a detective in Seattle trained to profile cases by the FBI. And his assessment of the case was that it was most likely uh, an ex-con who did this. The manner of death and the location of the body suggested a chilling sequence of events carried out with a high level of planning. At the time, what I believe happened was that Jay and Tanya showed up around midnight at the furnace company. And they probably were outside the van having a cigarette before they went to bed in the van. The killer was out hunting for somebody to kidnap, rape, and maybe kill. And he, he carried a rape murder kit with him. It had the, the surgical gloves, he had a gun, he had extra bullets, and he had a lot of zip ties. So he came prepared to fulfill some fantasy that he had and was able to get control of both of them. He knew the area of High Bridge, so he drove out there where he knew he could park underneath the bridge in the darkness in the middle of the night. So he had the opportunity there to tell Tanya, you behave and I won't hurt Jay, I'll let him go and he took Jay out and killed him as quietly as he could so Tanya couldn't hear him. And then he was able to come back and reassure Tanya that if you do everything I tell you, I'll let you go. It seems like a refined MO. Yeah. Another element of sophistication on the case was that it occurred in multiple counties. So I think, you know, people in prison hear that Cops don't communicate with each other. So if you kidnap them in King County and you kill one in Snohomish County and you kill one in Skagit County and you dump the van in Whatcom County, the police aren't organized enough to be able to figure out who you are and, and get the crime solved. This crime had all the makings of an experienced prepared killer. Police believed they were searching for an ex-con with a violent history. The truth would prove shocking to everyone, including the killer's best friend. It screwed me up a little bit, because everything I see on the news or whatever will remind me of my friend Bill. The murder. As the days ticked by after Tanya and Jay's murder, with no leads panning out, Tanya's brother John despaired of ever finding an answer. It was a pretty pretty dark time. I stayed home for a number of weeks, didn't go back to university for a while, tried to spend some more time at home with my parents and try to, try to get through it, but it was uh, very dark days. Despite a robust search for tips or witnesses by authorities, the days became months and the months became years. 
there were 230 different people named as possible suspects in this case because it was profiled on Unsolved Mysteries back in 1989 or 88. So people from all over the country had been calling in tips on this. Every year that you don't get a hit, you know, it's like, are we ever going to get one? I was always hopeful that it would be solved. I never gave up hope, knowing that the DNA evidence that was there. The DNA was the one thing investigators had going for them. But even as the national database known as CODIS expanded, they couldn't find an answer. I don't think they did any DNA work until like 1991 on this case. The DNA was put into CODIS and a year later it was put into the equivalent of CODIS in Canada and there were no matches. I think a lot of people were surprised that it that there wasn't a match based on the profile of what the killer was expected to be like. Had the killer refined his approach to avoid leaving DNA again? Had he died? Had he left the country? It would take more than 30 years for law enforcement to find the answer. And it would come through genetic genealogy. This is the most powerful tool that's ever came along since DNA came along itself. Because it's a way that you can solve any crime if you have DNA evidence. Not just one where you've got a person that's in CODIS. In 2018, 31 years after Tanya and Jay were murdered, Detective Jim Scharf received a message that would finally bring him closer to solving this cold case. I went to my office and I had an email from Barbara Ray Venter. And the email said, today they caught the Golden State Killer and I don't want anybody to know it, but I was behind that. He was responsible for like 52 rapes and 13 murders in California over all this time period. And uh, I thought, wow, this is great. Barbara Ray Venter was a noted genealogist. She told me that she thought at that point she could help me identify the killer of Jay and Tanya. She says we need to get a DNA sample and upload it to GEDmatch and we can work on identifying him through his relatives. And at that point, what was your understanding of GEDmatch? It was a public database. If you get your DNA from Ancestry.com and I get my DNA profile from 23andMe, and if you upload it to GEDmatch and I upload it to GEDmatch, we can match if we're related. So it's a way to match to more relatives GEDmatch, spelled G-E-D match, is a publicly open resource, which made it a potential boon for law enforcement trying to identify unknown DNA. As it turns out, Jim's team had already given a DNA sample of Tanya and Jay's killer to Parabon Nanolabs, the company that was using genetics to create composite sketches of suspects like Raymond Rowe. Parabon agreed to do the GEDmatch search for this case to see if they could identify the suspect that way. I'm thinking maybe we'll match to 40 relatives. Because I had put my DNA in to a couple of different companies, and I matched to like a thousand people. Most of them you're matching to fourth cousins. 
So you might have hundreds of fourth cousins out there that you have no idea who they could even be. Four days later, a Parabon rep called him with an answer. He says, I've narrowed it down to one name. And I'm like, I don't believe this. What's the guy's name? And he says, William Earl Talbot II. And I'm like, I have never heard of this person. I ran his criminal history, and it was pretty insignificant. I think he had a simple assault charge a year or two before the murder. Nothing since then. Did that surprise you? Yeah. William Talbot II was a lifelong Washington resident who lived in nearby Woodenville and worked for a trucking company. He seemed unremarkable in every way, and he had never been on police's radar. Jim and his team now needed to verify Talbot's DNA. Detectives followed him down to a little cafe in Buckley, and he went inside and ate a lunch. We contacted the waitress and asked her not to throw his stuff away when she bust his table. So after he ate, they gathered the items that she had set aside in the kitchen. They packaged that and brought it to me. The results from the lab were definitive. Talbot was their guy. They were able to verify that it was him, and the chance of it being anybody else is one in 180 quadrillion. Were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you thrilled? I was like, I can't believe this. <laughs> I teared uh, up like I am now. And then I said, we got him. And it was, it was just wonderful feeling after all these years to solve such a horrendous crime like that. Officers cornered Talbot at his workplace, and Jim himself snapped the cuffs on him. I said, listen, you're under arrest. And he says, what for? And I said, first degree murder. Now we're going to take you up to the sheriff's office in Everett and we'll be able to talk. And he said, not after what you told me, I want an attorney. I got on the phone and I called John Van Kylenborg and I told him that he was in custody. He's sitting in the back seat of this car. And he's like, he's sitting in the back seat of the car you're in right now? And I'm like, yeah, he's all under control. You don't have to worry about it anymore. I've been a police officer for 44 years. And that day was probably the highlight of that whole career. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. It was unbelievable to think that there was that kind of a breakthrough after after that many years. I mean, it was uh, yeah, a surreal feeling to learn that that had happened. Just disbelief, really. For John and his family, the satisfaction of a long-awaited arrest came with a catch. Having to relive the events of Tanya's death in court, because Talbot insisted he was innocent. Did you attend the trial? Yeah, I did, every day. What was that like? It was hard, for sure. It was something I always thought I would do. Never thought it was going to be 30 years, 32 years later. But it was, it was good to do, certainly it was the right thing to do. What was it like to look your sister's killer in the face? <sighs> and it is very unsettling, very strange, really just hard, hard to imagine what's going through his head at that moment when I'm looking at him and or what was going through his head 32 years ago. At least finally someone was held to account. 
For the jury, the evidence was overwhelming. On June 28, 2019, William Talbot was found guilty of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder. Although this was a capital case, his punishment would show a level of mercy he never offered his victims. The only sentence you could get is life in prison for doing an aggravated first-degree murder. Why not the death penalty? During the course of the trial, the death penalty was stricken down in the state of Washington. So he was sentenced to two life prisons sentences. And I'm sure he'll go to his grave denying that he did this. For John and his family, the conviction of William Talbot was a powerful payoff after three long decades of grief. But a huge question remained. Who was this man? And how had he evaded capture, fooling even those closest to him? To explore that question, we talked with someone who was as fooled as anyone. His best friend. I just think about what he did. How he took two innocent kids' lives. Sitting in prison's too good for that guy. Authorities believed that the killer of Tanya Van Kylenberg and Jay Cook was a person with a criminal background. That's what the profile said. The reality was very different. William Talbot did not have a rap sheet. And even those close to him had a hard time believing he had committed this crime. How do you think he was able to become that violent? I don't know. I mean, like I, said, I, I was floored. It just, just knowing that, that your close friend became a murderer, it'll forever change me. Mike Seat would become a key figure in the investigation. Although he had lost touch with Talbot many years prior, he was his closest friend in the time leading up to the murders. Mike still recalls the first time he met William Talbot, or Bill, as he knew him. Mike was 20 years old, Bill was 17, and everything about that day was memorable. So when exactly then did you meet William Talbot? I met him in 1980, the day Mount St. Helens blew up. My dad and mom uh, had bought a house that was real close to Bill's parents' place and my aunt and uncles. We were in a field and all my cousins and everybody were partying and stuff. And uh, Bill was there and he had a few beers in him and, and he grabbed some kid's bicycle, went over a jump and face planted himself right in the dirt. <laughs> I looked at my cousins like, who's that idiot? I didn't know anybody but my cousins around there, you know, and I guess he just became a friend. Mike found Bill to be a likable and adventurous guy, and they began hanging out regularly. What types of things did you guys do together? He got me interested in snorkeling and stuff, and we went to all kinds of lakes. Always finding little treasures and stuff, but we were always looking for the big treasure, you know? Maybe find a ski boat or something like that. We were interested in photography, both of us. And I showed him all my equipment. And he goes, my mom's got a dark room. And we used to use the dark room, but we could only develop black and white film. That's all she had. She used to scream, Billy, quit using my film. And I still hear her saying that. Looking back, Mike remembers one photography excursion that seemed innocent at the time, but is now seared into his memory for its grisly significance. 
the first year we were running around, we took a lot of photos. You know, we took one. It was down by the river, just down below the bridge where he dumped Jay's body. You know, and, and we took a picture of the prison, but that was like five years before he did this crime. It must have been really weird when you learned that that's where they found Jay. It was, you know, I'm going, good gosh, we were taking pictures in that vicinity. Talbot's knowledge of the area wasn't from being a convicted felon, as authorities had presumed. It was from being a photography enthusiast who liked to explore his surroundings. The image Mike paints of Talbot is that of a friendly and even playful character. But that's not to say he didn't have an edge. There was always something about Bill. There was something there that, that I couldn't ever pinpoint. Something good or something bad? I wouldn't say it's bad. I just Maybe it was just the way he grew up, you know? I know he didn't get along with his family. Why didn't he get along with his family? He argued a lot. I remember when I first met them and went in there, you know, and just the screaming and yelling he would do. I mean, even down to little sister screaming at him, you know, because he did something that irritated her, you know, and it just, it just never did stop. And he had a real bad temper. And how did you learn that? Was there a specific instance? Well, there was, you know, there was one time we were at a swap meet. I bought an equalizer and we put it in my car and was hooking it up, but I didn't see him with the headphones on and I cranked the stereo up about halfway, which is pretty loud with the equalizer and all that. And, 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 and he yanked the headphones off and he looked me straight in the eyes and he goes, don't you ever do that again. He was just like the devil looking in my eyes. It scared the hell out of me. I started shaking. I go, I, you know, I, I was a pretty tough kid then. I, I, I'd been in a lot of scraps. I wasn't worried. But that time I was. And did you ever see that side of him again? No, I never did. Did you ever see him be violent at all? No, no. no. He was pretty, pretty, you know, easy going. Whatever was going on inside of Talbot, he was good at bottling it up around his friends. So much so that when he was around 22 years old, he and Mike even became roommates for a while. I ran into him down in Woodville at the, the market or whatever, and he was, you know, I was looking for a place. And I go, well, heck, I go, we got a big house. So I, I have my other roommate, and I go, we probably could bring you a room. It had to have been 85, 86. So 85, 86, we're creeping up on when these murders happened. Well, yeah. sure. So in 87, when this happened, you were no longer roommates, correct? No, no. He uh, lost his job, had no way to pay rent. I ain't gonna let him live there for nothing. You know, I helped him along for quite a few years, you know, he never had nothing. When Talbot moved out, it was the beginning of the end of his relationship with Mike. They lost touch over the next year, going their separate ways in life. Three decades later, in 2018, Mike's memories of Bill would get triggered in the worst possible way. At what point in your life did you first hear about Jay and Tanya's murders? When they arrested Bill. Oh, really? My aunt called me. She goes, guess who got arrested, Michael? And I go, who? She started to say Bill, and I go, Talbot? And she goes, yeah. And I go, no way. No, 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 no. 
As Mike began to read the details of Talbot's crime, he remembered something horrifying that he'd noticed when driving past the Talbot family home back in 1987. I kind of got the shakes on that because I seen the van. It, it was in their driveway, his parents' driveway one morning. So you had seen Jay and Tanya's van at the Talbot house when he was living at his yeah, family? Yes, I did. Yeah, I'm a car guy, and the first thing that hit me was the big Ford hubcaps on it. They were just shining. That's what, what really drew me to the van. Do you believe that Tanya was in the van? I don't know. I, I really thought that maybe Grandpa, his Grandpa, gave him a van. He gave him a station wagon, you know, when he was living with us. So, you know, well, he got him a van to live in. And that's the, I, I left it at that. Every time I see the picture of the van, I mean, I, I, I got to shake right now. I mean, it, it shakes me. Mike got in touch with detectives to tell them what he had seen. It brought the nightmare to his front door. Oh, they came into my home and, and did a big interview. You know, and they had to take saliva tests and everything to clear me, and which they probably suspected me because I was close to Bill. What kind of questions did they ask you? Oh, everything, you know, they, from under the sun. I mean, lots lots of stuff about Bill, what we did. Have I ever been with him here or here? And some of the stuff was really graphic because I got to see the, the, the pictures, the scene, and the whole thing, you know, it's not pretty. So they, they actually showed you the pictures of the crime scene? Yeah, I've seen pictures, yeah. It, it basically screwed me up for a long time. Did you ever think, looking back, that he could be capable of such horrible violence? You know, I, I, I would have never seen it, no. I knew he got pissed off and mad, but I go, you know, I, I'd done that too. The DNA analysis proved that Talbot was capable of such violence, but it also appears that for whatever reason, he never acted on that impulse again. If not for genetic genealogy, he likely never would have been identified. And that brings us to an important figure at the heart of this story. She had no idea the role she would play in this huge criminal investigation. She had never heard of Tanya Van Kylenberg or Jay Cook. She had barely even heard of William Talbot. She had only come across his name because of some research she decided to do for fun. And it provided the break that police used to blow this case open. I had never met him, but William Talbot is my second cousin. I was related to a murderer. Next time on Unraveled, Once a Killer. When you have DNA, you can connect with people you didn't know you were related to. You are kind of accepting the possibility that you might make some disturbing revelations. A lot of times there's these one-off offenders that committed possibly a very horrific crime, blending into society like that crime never happened. I mean, it's painful enough just to know that your loved one was murdered, but then to never have any answers. Through our work, we can get answers. It was like dominoes. Some of the most horrific cases out there start getting solved utilizing this tool.
Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, Jeff Kuntz, and myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing is by Eric Smith. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode four next week, wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy. Thank you for listening, for your support.